Thank you, and it's a great privilege to be here with you this morning. Um, I stand behind this pulpit, Ken's pulpit, and uh, try to hold it down as well as we can. Ephesians chapter 4 this morning is our text once again. And uh, am I on? Yeah, all right. Ephesians chapter 4, a couple weeks ago when I was here, we covered verses 1 to 6. And um, yeah, I'm on here then, I think. The light's on. Um, when I was here a couple weeks ago, we covered verses 1 to 6, and um, I don't know exactly how many um, times I'll be with you in the next couple of months, but we're gonna, I'm going to try to space this out so that we end in chapter 5 and verse 33. We're just going to try to hit this big chunk of scripture. We talked last time about being called to walk in unity. This morning we'll be talking about being called to walk in strength. And then in chapter 5, uh, and whatever is in between, but chapter 5 we're talking about being called to walk in hope. All right, so this morning our text is verse 7 through 16, and if you have that um, open before you, we'll read that, and um, I'll, I'll read it, we'll pray, and then we'll dive in, all right? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7, But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Father, help us this morning as we open your word. Help me to uh, make this text plain. Pray that it would be an encouragement to these dear folks. And thank you for the privilege that is ours to gather around the written word of God, the infallible, inerrant, all-sufficient scripture. Help us as we study it this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> um, uh, Ephesians is, no, uh, yep, I sure will. All right, sounds good, Bruce, sorry, bear with me. I was born in the 70s, I'm not that technologically savvy. <laughs> there we go. All right, um, <clears throat> 
So what we're, what we're going to do here is Ephesians is it's a young church. Ephesus is a young church. Paul is helping them out. We talked about this a little bit last time. Um, and, and he's giving a, a kind of a broad overview, a, a broad sketch of, of how church works to this to this young church, this young group of believers. And, and so we're not going to get into a lot of the nitty-gritty nuts and bolts. This is just sort of a, a big, broad overview, which I, I trust will be very helpful for you. This text here the, in verse 7 through 17 is personally of great significance to me for this reason. Um, my senior year of Bible school, of, I was at Cornerstone University in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and across the pond, if you're on the campus of Cornerstone, there's a pond, and on the other side of the pond is Grand Rapids Theological Seminary, and I had to take one class from the seminary my senior year. It is to this day um, the only seminary, class, seminary level class that I've ever taken, um, though I got undergrad credit for it, who, who, who knew, um, because that class was more work than all my other classes combined. But anyway, that particular class was called Dynamics of Church Growth, and this was in the early 2000s. There was a fellow by the name of Rob Bell lighting up the town of Grand Rapids uh, in his church called Mars Hill long before he wrote that wretched piece of garbage, Love Wins, that has taken Christianity by storm. Um, At that time, Rick Warren had all but patented the seeker-sensitive model of church growth. There was really a, a, a sort of palpable excitement in the evangelical air because we finally figured out the recipe to make a mega church. We just do this, 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 and add water, and presto, we're going to have souls saved by the thousands, communities upended by the cause of Christ, and, and you as a pastor, they, they said in so many words, will be successful beyond anything the Apostle Paul could have imagined. Now, at that point, Mark Driscoll and others hadn't come along quite yet to fine-tune that, that doctrine of vision casting, but it was there in a sort of prenatal form. Um, and, and along with reading The Purpose Driven Church, one of the other books that I was assigned to read had a chapter entitled Being a Rancher and Not a Shepherd. Well, pastors to be a rancher because your church is going to be so big. You're not going to have time to know everybody. And so you just got to be kind of a rancher. You're this cowboy kind of holding everything all together. And I thought to myself, good grief. Do we know a better metaphor for the relationship of pastor and congregation than the Lord Jesus did? And so that class really made a large impression on, on me, mostly because I wasn't buying what was being sold, but at least I was... I was honest enough to try to grapple with the ideas that were presented to me and try to uh, run them against the scripture. And, and I credit that class for sending me into this text to um, force me to write out a philosophy of ministry, which I had to then present to the class. And I remember working through my philosophy of ministry, that is why we do what we do. And, and, and after the presentation, um, you get feedback. And one of my fellow students said, you know, I really like how you use the Bible in that. And, uh, and I was the only one in the entire class that actually appealed to the text of Scripture to say, what on earth are we doing as we minister? So I said then, and by God's grace, and I suppose old-fashioned Baptist stubbornness, I still say nuts to marketing, nuts to gimmicks, nuts to pastors who hear directly from God what a ministry should look like, and then 
go out and pound all the, their opposition into the ground, nuts to catering to the cultural whims of the unsaved? Since when should someone who doesn't know Jesus tell us who do know Jesus how to worship our God? Nuts to seeker sensitivity as it's defined, because Romans 3 says there are no seekers, and John 4 says the Father is the only seeker, so if we're going to be seeker sensitive, let's be sensitive to Him. But I've also learned that, that it's, it's rather easy to be against something. Um, you can become rather famous rather quickly for being against things. You could start a blog online railing against all sorts of things in evangelicalism and, and you'll get a lot of followers and, and you'll make a name for yourself rather quickly. Opposition against things is the stuff of revolutions. It's exciting. It gathers a lot of support. But defining what we, can actu- we are actually for can be another matter altogether. And so the question that, that we ask is, what are we actually trying to accomplish in this thing called church? That's, that's where we're headed. And so as you as a church move forward with things like an organized leadership, moving towards eldership, and you're working through covenant membership, why, why are those things important and how do they fit into the grand scheme of Jesus' promise that it would be him, not us, who would build his church? And so our text here in Ephesians 4 is a, really a rapid flyover of the progression and growth of a church. The, the grand climax of the text is verse 16, which says essentially, when everything is working like it should, the church is self-sustaining, it is self-strengthening, and self-growing. And so that's what we mean when we say that this morning that the church is called to walk in strength. It doesn't mean that this is all man-centered and that Jesus isn't actually the one who's accomplishing these things. He's behind everything. But Jesus has so designed the church to function and operate in such a manner that it would continue for these last 1986, 1987 years since the founding of the church without his physical presence. It keeps going on nearly two millennia now. Uh, the church has been going without his physical presence to hold it together. And so our presence here this morning is proof that Jesus' plan has succeeded and, and so I think we can admit that he probably knows what he's doing. <coughs> to that end, we're going to break the text apart into five pieces and then just work through them. The way that Paul writes this text, if you were to kind of graph out the emotion of this text, it, it looks sort of like a heart monitor. It goes whoop and then down and whoop, 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 and, and hits five high points. He's calling the church to walk in strength. He makes that point, and then he comes at it from a different angle, makes it again, until he makes it these five times. Here's, here's the five points, and, and I'll show you the climax of them in the text, and then we'll come back and hit them all. Paul writes first about the foundation of our strength in verses 7 to 10, and he, he ends and he climaxes in verse 10 by saying that Christ is going to fill all things. Secondly, in verse 11 and 12, he writes about the process of our strengthening. He ends that by saying in the end of verse 12, the church is built up. Thirdly, in verse 13, he writes about the maturing of our strength. And that is the church would reflect the fullness of Christ. That's, again, that climax. In verse 14 and 15, we're going to read about the testing of our strength. 
which is climaxed by growing into the head, even Christ. That is to say, the church becomes a fitting body for her head. And lastly, in verse 16, we'll see the operation of strength, which is a church that is growing and self-building. You see that in the end of verse 16. So we get a sense that he's kind of hitting this high point over and over and over again. The glory of Christ, the strength of the church, and, and he binds them together very tightly. The church is strong because Christ is glorious, and Christ is glorious because his church is strong, and these two concepts sort of feed off of each other. So here we go. Let's just jump into the text. The foundation of our strength is uh, the first mark that we're going to talk about, and uh, it's in verse 7 through 10. Verse 7 says, To each one of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, Paul is working off of a, uh, a, a philosophical concept of, of the one and the many, of unity and diversity. Okay? So um, it, it works something like this. Uh, here is my phone, and I only have my phone up here uh, so I can make sure that I get you out in time uh, because I don't have a watch. But I'm not my phone. I'm different than my phone. But if you were to take me and cut me in half, you'd have half of me. And if you were to take my phone and cut it in half, you'd have half a phone. And you cut them in half. You just keep cutting in half, smaller, smaller, smaller. Eventually, the, the idea is you'd wind up with some sort of atomic level. Uh, you'd wind up with protons and neutrons and subatomic particles. And the subatomic particles that make up me happen to be exactly like the ones that make up my phone. Okay? Weird thing. But that's the way that God has created the world. He uses these little tiny things and then that are the same everywhere, and then he just makes different stuff out of them. And so in the church, the, the concept is, in verse 7, each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gifts. There's, that's diversity. We're all different. But in verse 4 through 6, you see it says there's one body, one spirit, just as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and so forth. So if you were to take believers who all, all look different and all, who all are different, and you bring them down to their indivisible substance, you, you, you take all the people of a church and break them down into as small a particle as you possibly can, you know what you come up with? You find that everyone has part of one church, one Holy Spirit, one calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and so on and so forth. So that's the, the kind of uh, philosophical, if you will, foundation that we're working from. Unity and diversity. All right, in verse 7 to 10, Paul is going to lay forth the foundation of the strength of the church. Paul calls it in verse 7, Christ's gift, and that gift, according to verse 8, was given to the church during Christ's victory parade over sin. So you got to experience a parade yesterday in Cross Lake. I heard it was an absolute doozy um, and, and, and something that is looked forward to all year. And parades are fun. They're exciting. There's sort of a festive atmosphere to them. And the parade that's uh, pictured here, it's in the word led. He led captive a host of captives, and it's more fully fleshed out in Colossians. But the, the parade here is, is Christ, as a general, has gone out to a great and momentous battle. And he has been absolutely victorious on the field. And so he returns to the capital city, tugging along all the prisoners of war behind him. And, and the idea is, you, is that Christ is tugging these, 
soldiers, these giant barbarian soldiers that they used to be feared, they used to be valiant, we used to think they were undefeatable. But Christ has conquered them and he parades them in such a way as to call forth mocking. So these big, giant, barbarian troops are now uh, dressed in ballerina outfits with ribbons in their hair and kitty whiskers painted on their face. And so you, you make fun of them because Christ has not only defeated them, he has humiliated them and shown them to be utterly powerless. And, and, and we say, look, this is our general. This is, this is what happens to the enemies of our, of our Savior. They are shown to be completely harmless. In Ephesians, the aspect of the parade Paul pays attention to is the one that kids really love about parades, and that is that, is that of giving gifts. The idea is that Christ has not only defeated the enemy, when he went out to battle with the enemy, he didn't just defeat them, he backed up a semi-truck to their banks and emptied them out. And he broke into their warehouses and he cleared them out and now he's parading among his own people and he's taking the loot and just tossing it all over the place. And he's giving gifts so that every one of his countrymen can taste the spoils of his victory. Now typically in, in Paul's day, a a great general like this would receive gifts from the admiring people. Uh, but our general's victory was so great that he's actually giving gifts. We can't give him anything that he doesn't have anyway. And so he gives to us, and he gives it lavishly. Paul calls it in verse 7, grace. We didn't earn these things. We didn't spend a single moment on the field of battle so that we should earn them or deserve them. They were just handed to us. In fact, uh, if we could pull in a little of Romans 5.8 here, we were yet sinners when Christ died for us. We were the enemy's slaves, but Christ has freed us. He has made us his own and then poured out the spoils of war upon us. And I think that's what Paul is getting at here when he quotes Psalm 68. Christ is leading captive a host of captives. It's kind of an odd statement. Taking captives captive, capturing the captured and leading them along. Um, but I think here he's not talking about the, the, uh, the barbarian soldiers per se uh, in Colossians 2, but he's talking about the captives who are captives of sin. He has captured them as spoils of war, and he is taking them with him where? It says, well, he's ascending on high. Okay? So he's taking the captives, and then he's going, he's going up. He's ascending on high. It really is a, a blessed and glorious thing to be a captive of the Lord Jesus. There's, there's hardly a greater joy, I think, than to be captivated by Christ. Now, verse 9 and 10 are in parenthesis, probably, in your Bible. They're to help explain where Christ is ascending, where he descended, and why. And, and the, the logic is very simple, and that's this. If Christ ascended or went up, he must have first come down. Uh, and I take the phrase, uh, descended into the lower parts of the earth to refer to his life and ministry here. Some see this as Jesus invading the grave uh, and taking captive those who had died prior to their atonement that was purchased by Christ. And that's, that's a possibility too. It's not a hill I'm going to die on or even fight for very hard. The larger point is this. Christ went down and he went back up. He went way down into the lower parts of the earth. And so he went way up, far above all the heavens, verse 10 says. 
The reason that he went down and back up again, why would he do that? Why would he go down and, and back up? The reason is, verse 10, the end of verse 10, so that he might fill all things. Okay, this is more than just a glorified elevator ride. Uh, once in a while, I'll take my kids to uh, the Mall of America, and, and, you know, there's 700 shots. But you know what they want to do? Ride the escalator up the stairs, turn around, go down. Okay, up, down, up, down. I can sit and have coffee, and uh, they just go up, down, up, down. Okay, Jesus is doing more than that. He's not just taking an elevator ride up and down. <clears throat> he's accomplishing something, and, and he's filling all things. Now, that is kind of abstract. In fact, it's really abstract. But let me take you back to chapter 1 and verse 22 to show you how Paul uses the same wording in chapter 1. In chapter 1 and verse 22, Paul says... He, that is the Father, put all things in subjection under his, that's Jesus' feet, and gave Jesus as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now here the church is called the body of Christ. That's not strange. That's uh, not new to our ears. It's going to be called that throughout this text and Paul's writings in general, but it's the church is also called, in verse 23, the fullness of him who fills. So he asked a question of chapter 4. If Jesus is going to fill all things, what's he going to fill it with? Okay. And the answer is, he's going to fill it with his fullness. Kind of odd. You fill something with fullness. What's the fullness? The fullness is... Chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, the church. The church is his body. The church is the fullness of the one who fills. So when we come back to chapter 4, verse 10, and we read that Christ descended low and he ascended high so that he might fill all things, we understand the way that he fills things is with his fullness, and the fullness is the church. And so that helps us make some sense of the giving of these gifts. What on earth are these gifts doing here? Well, they belong to the church in order that the church, which is the fullness, could actually fill. Are you with me? A little abstract, but the church is the fullness, and so the church is supposed to fill. That's what fullness does. It fills things. Okay. Paul is going to leverage these gifts as being very significant. They're going to be the practical cornerstone for the strength of the church. We'll see that in verse 11 and 12. So, Christ descended for battle. He ascended in victory. In his ascension, he gave gifts. The gifts are part of the, the bigger goal to fill all things, which is done through the means of the church, because the church is the fullness of the one who is filling. All right, it's a little heavy. We're going to move on, but hopefully it gets you just a toehold on, what, uh, uh, on which you can sort of begin to take hold of some of these rather odd-sounding verses and, and try to see how they fit together here. So the foundation for the strength of the church is rooted in Christ's victory over sin, his triumphant ascension, and his victory gifts, if you will. Those gifts are given to the church so the church can be the fullness of him who fills. Okay, number two, in verse 11 and 12, we have the process of our strengthening. How is the church actually strengthened? What is, what is the process there? We begin with Christ's gift or gifts. That word is singular in verse 7. It's plural in verse 8. We haven't actually defined what those gifts are yet. And there's some disagreement among people who are smarter than me as to exactly what they are. 
The debate goes like this. Either the gifts here are spiritual gifts, like you'd find described more fully in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, or the gifts are people, as it seems to be described here in verse 11 and 12. So back in verse 7, Paul says, we've each received grace according to the measure of Christ's gift, and that could be a reference to the fact that every believer is in possession of some spiritual gift, or to, to use a better term, every believer is in possession of some manifestation of the Holy Spirit for the good of the church. So if the gift in verse 7 is the Spirit, we've all received some measure of the Spirit in order to minister good to each other. And then in verse 8, he says, uh, Christ gave gifts, and then launches into verse 11 with a list of gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors, shepherds, teachers, however you want to translate that. My understanding of this text here is that Christ has given people to the church here in this text. He gave the church apostles and prophets, who if you were to look at chapter 2 and verse 20 of Ephesians, the apostles and prophets set the foundation of the church. They spoke with the authority of the Bible itself, as those who were speaking the very words of God in a day when the Bible was incomplete. And so they wielded great authority in a day when there was no other authority to appeal to. They spoke what God revealed to them, and they spoke with such perfect accuracy and divine authority. Uh, but now the revelation of the Word of God being complete, their task of laying down the foundation of the church being finished, these men are no more. Then we have the evangelists those men whom Jesus has given to send the gospel forth in particular power uh, to the places the gospel is not and establish local churches. Think, think missionaries here. Think uh, frontier evangelism, uh, not the fire-breathing guys who manipulate emotions and hold the longest altar calls in the world and only have seven different sermons. Okay, that's, that's how I grew up with the understanding of evangelists. I don't think that's what Paul has in mind, somebody who lives in a travel trailer and screams at people all the time. Okay? Um, evangelists plant churches where there are none. Okay? The pastors and teachers here, I think, refer to the same person, pastoring, carrying the picture of a shepherd who keeps a flock together and in order. And the teacher is, of course, the idea of someone who gives instruction. So I, this is, I think, Christ's gift. Christ's gift is here, these men who serve the church, they lay the foundation, they plant the church, they lead and they direct and they teach the church. And one of the practical implications of this is to be very cognizant, uh, we have to be very aware of the significance of these men when we find them. There is false versions of all of, all of these guys, okay? Uh, false apostles, false prophets, false evangelists spreading a false gospel. There's false pastors who are just trying to make a name for themselves and make themselves rich. I think if you were to turn on so-called Christian television, after about 45 seconds, you could spot a false version of all of these offices. But just because there's false pastors doesn't mean that real ones don't exist or that Jesus has given up on the idea of giving the church these, these men just because Satan has come up with fakes. Pastors, real, genuine, humble, gifted men of God, and I would include in this category elders as well, have been sovereignly given to the church by the hand of Christ himself. And as such, we should hold them in high esteem, as Paul elsewhere says, and as Peter does, and the writer of the Hebrews does, because without them, this process of the strengthening 
of a church cannot and will not get started. You'll notice verse 11 and 12 is a, is a natural progression from giving to ending up in the end of verse 12 of, of a church being built up. In verse 11, we have the men and the offices Jesus has given the church. And in verse 12, we have, if you will, the domino effect of their labors. So in verse 12... Jesus has given these men for, that's the operative word here, why did he give them? For the equipping of the saints. Why do we want saints to be equipped? For the work of the service. And, and what's the point of that? To the building up of the body of Christ. And so those little prepositions really help this move along. The apostles and prophets lay a foundation. The evangelists plant the church. The pastors and teachers equip the saints. The saints do the work of service the work of ministry, with the result that the body of Christ is built up or it is strengthened. And so the, you'll notice that the ministry of a pastor is really only one link in this great chain of uh, the, uh, one link in the great chain of Jesus' purpose for the church and the, and the church actually fulfilling that purpose. Okay? It's one thing for Jesus to intend for something to happen. It's another thing for that thing to actually happen, and there's a process in between. And pastors and teachers and these men here in verse 11 play an indispensable part of that. The primary task then of a pastor in verse 12 is to equip the saints with the goal that the saints would do the work of ministry or the work of service. Now this is completely backwards from what I learned in my seminary class. I was taught that the church was essentially to be built around the ministry of the pastor, and he knows how to do everything the best, so he just does everything. I was, but Paul, Paul says the church is built around the ministry of the saints. The pastor's primary task is to equip the saints or the congregation of believers in order for them to do the work of ministry. You know, sometimes a, a pastor grows weary of the labor of, of training believers and and he can become frustrated with their failures and then just throw up his hands and say i'll just do it myself okay? I, I run into this as a father uh, asking my son or my daughters to to do something and and they try to do it they just don't do it particularly well and so i just say you know what just just let me do it okay and uh and a pastor has has sometimes that same temptation um but he his job is to train the believers to do the work of ministry. Sometimes, sometimes believers can be really frustrated that nothing is getting done, and then they blame their pastor for it. After all, you're the one that we pay to do this stuff, okay? Uh, you all are here, and, and you don't get a check for showing up, okay? The, the pastor does, so that means he should do all the stuff. Um, and so we can get frustrated on that end as well. So in order for this to actually work, in order for verse 12 to actually work, there has to be some sort of understanding between a pastor and a congregation. The, the pastor has been given by Jesus for the benefit of believers. Believers are responsible to care for the business of the ministry of the church. And, and a church's ministry, as you know, is, is very broad. It has familial family dynamics. We minister to individuals, we minister to families, it has social dynamics, we minister to communities, it has practical dynamics, we minister to physical needs, it has spiritual dynamics, we minister to spiritual needs. The church's re primary responsibility is to her own people, which I think is something that, unfortunately, the seeker movement forgot, but it also has responsibilities 
to be a lighthouse to the community, and some, sometimes that's something that those of us who react to the seeker movement also forget. Okay? And so we've got to try to walk this tightrope of balance. But if all of these dynamics in various ministries fall on just the shoulders of the pastor teachers, a church can never be strong. And on the other hand, if pastors and teachers spend all their efforts engaged in trying to do all the ministries of the church because they don't trust the congregation to do it like they would do it or they think it should be done, you wind up with a weak church because the pastor isn't doing his primary job, which is primarily to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. So this is the process. Christ gives, pastors equip, saints work. If that happens, the church is built up. There's really not any shortcuts. It takes cooperation and willingness to submit to Christ designed uh, by everyone involved, but it's the process that Christ has designed for the strength of the church. Number three, <clears throat> the maturing of our strength. This is verse 13. Verse 13 begins with uh, another important word, and that's the word until. And again, this carries the idea of movement. We're, we're moving towards something. We're heading somewhere until that something that we're heading towards here in verse 13 is maturity, specifically the maturity of the church. Um, and, and, and again, notice Paul kind of brings in the idea of the one and the many again, unity and diversity. He says, until we all attain. Uh, we is, is, is the one and all is the many, all individuals. Each individual is moving in this direction, and yet the entire church is having to move in this direction. And I think Paul says it that way because he understands that we all, I think, move at different speeds. We move in different ways. But the general direction of a church is to be moving towards maturity. Specifically, the movement Paul has in mind here is first described as unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. I want to think with you about the word unity of the faith. We talked about unity back couple weeks ago from verses 1 to 3, but think about the phrase, the unity of the faith. Paul could have said, until we attain unity built on faith, or he could have said we attain unity through faith, but he actually says unity of the faith. And I think what he means is that unity with brothers and sisters in Christ is actually built into being a disciple of the Lord Jesus. If you were to spend some time in John 13 through 16, and especially 1 John, you will discover that your relationship to your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ is exactly identical and proportional to your relationship to the Lord Jesus himself. And so if your relationship to Christ is suffering, your relationship to your brothers and sisters in Christ will suffer. And if your relationship to your brothers and sisters in Christ is suffering, your relationship to the Lord Jesus suffers. They work in perfect tandem. And sometimes that's good and sometimes that's, that's bad. If we are united to Christ, we are united to each other. Okay? The closer we get to Christ, the closer we get to each other. Okay? You, you can understand that sort of a, a picture. But it's still a process. That's why he uses the word until. This is not something that just happens overnight. This is a process. We talk about growing in our relationship with Christ. And so it's, I think, entirely appropriate to talk about growing in our relationships with each other. It, it is a universal process. Notice the word all, until we all attain. There's not exceptions granted here. Paul's goal for the Ephesians is complete and perfect unity with 
everyone rooted in the gospel. Um, Jesus said something I think is worth calling to mind here as it relates to the unity of the faith. Um, he said in Luke seven forty seven, um, almost as if it was a proverb, he said, he who is forgiven little loves little. In other words, if, if you have embraced the gospel and if you have embraced faith in Christ, you have been forgiven for treason against a holy, infinite God. And your well-earned eternal damnation has been poured out on Jesus instead of you. And if you've been forgiven much, you will love much, not just Jesus, others. And if you have not been forgiven much, you will not love much. And so the, the, the idea is that the church is the collection of people who have been forgiven much, and therefore they are to love much. There's, there's more here in verse 13, because I want you to notice what Paul says at the end of the verse here. He says, unity of faith and unity of the knowledge of Christ, that is, unity of, that's built on the gospel, we're united with Christ, we're united with others, this kind of thing is in motion. It's moving towards something that Paul calls a mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, maturity is kind of an interesting word here uh, to use. It's the, word, it's the Greek word teleos, it has to do with the goal or the end of a thing, and when you couple it with teleos, with the word man, andros, here in Greek, you get the idea of a man who has reached full height and full strength. This is where the church is heading. Like a man who is at full height and full strength. That's in contrast to the child in verse 14. So what is the maturity? How do we, how do we know in a and a church is mature. Well, it's, it's the last phrase in verse 13 that expounds on that. Paul says it's the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And here again is that, that odd little phrase, the fullness of Christ, used back in chapter 1 to refer to the church, used here in chapter 4 and verse 10. I think what Paul is saying is that the church is re representative and reflective of the entire person of the Lord Jesus. The church is to be, for lack of a better term, and remember this one, the church is to be well-rounded. Well-rounded. When I read the Gospels, I can't help but notice how wonderfully multidimensional Jesus is. Have you ever thought of that? Jesus sets little children on his lap, and he overturns the tables of the money changers and flogs them on their way out. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. And he shouts at the hypocrites who have hijacked Judaism. He says, he says in John 2, Woman, what does this have to do to me? And then he turns water into wine. In John 5, Jesus walks into a pavilion full of crippled and lame people and heals one person. How strange. Uh, that boggles my mind in John 5. There's sick people all over the place and Jesus heals one. Jesus shrivels up a fig tree. Jesus speaks like no one has ever spoken before. And yet sometimes Jesus intentionally speaks in such a way that nobody can make heads or tails of what he's saying unless he takes time to explain it in private. So it's really impossible, I think, to describe Jesus in one word. What is Jesus? Well, you could say, you could say love, sure, but then you have to make sense of things like Jesus saying this. Where I'm going, you cannot come. You will die in your sins. Oh, that's tough stuff. 
Jesus responds perfectly in every situation to every person, and his responses were as varied as the situation he found himself in. Jesus offended people. He intentionally let Lazarus die. This one blows my mind. He tells Peter and the disciples to go out and buy a sword, and then half an hour later, he yells at Peter for using the sword. Okay. Uh, strange. The portrait of Christ, then, in the New Testament is really a multicolored portrait. No one person, like me or you, could ever have that multifaceted of a personality or that level of ability for dealing with so many different situations. We have our strengths and we have our weaknesses, but the way the church was designed is for the strength of one to fill in the weakness of another and vice versa until we all together, all of us as a group, as a congregation or a, a body, begin to reflect that multi-layered picture of who Christ is. So what does Jesus look like? And the best example I could point you to would be a mature church, a church that is strong because it's multi-dimensional and prepared for anything and everything that gets thrown at it just as the Lord Jesus was. And so that's the goal. That's where we're heading, this well-rounded maturity. How are we doing? Okay. The testing of our strength, number four. The testing of our strength is in verse 14 to 15. We'll try to go through these rather quickly. But in verse 14 and 15, the church's strength is being tested. The church that has become strong in verse 14 is not like children anymore. And then Paul lists three settings in which it is dangerous to be a child. Three settings in which it is dangerous to be a child. The first is a child at sea. Paul says, no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. If you were to close your eyes and picture in your mind a sailor, you would no doubt think of someone strong and perhaps a bit on the crusty side. Okay? Sailors are in some ways warriors who fight the turmoil of the seas. Children are helpless at sea because the waves are large and the winds are strong. And it takes not only a great deal of strength to keep a ship afloat, it takes a great deal of learning and skill to learn how to navigate it under all conditions. Um, there's a story, and this is a little different than sailors, but there's a story in church history. During the Crusades, there was a young boy, I think his name was Peter, and, uh, and he decided he was going to put together a crusade. He'd heard a word from God, and he's going to go, and, and he's going to go, uh, to Jerusalem, and, and because of the purity of their faith, they received the blessing of the, the church yuckety-yucks. And so this 10-year-old boy began to march his way towards Jerusalem uh, from, from Western Europe, and as he went, he gathered a follower, crowd of followers until there's 10,000 or so children that are heading to Jerusalem. And they come... Uh, where they have to cross the Mediterranean Sea, and, and whatever happened to this boy, and nobody knows, okay? All these children were out to sea, and they were lost. And, and it's foolish to think that children can handle the, the, uh, 
the rigors of, of the sea or even warfare. Can you imagine 10, 11, 12-year-olds trying to, to fight? Had they made it to Jerusalem in the 10th, 11th century? Uh, it's, it's rather silly. The, st- the storms in view here are called the winds of doctrine. And I think what Paul is referring to here is the constant blowing in and out of Christianity, various novel and attractive, but ultimately destructive doctrines. Okay? And so these things just blow in and blow out of the church. They've done that from the very beginning, and they still do. Um, I was, just for fun, as I was thinking about this, I, I looked up uh, the Christian book, bestseller books, for the last uh, 10 years. And you see that you can trace these wins. These books that come in, they're bestsellers. They are the thing. And then they just sort of blow out again. I remember I was in college. Uh, I was rather sheltered and protected kind of uh, from the outside world. But one semester, there's about three chapel speakers that came in and spoke on some obscure verse out of, I think it's First Chronicles, about some guy that I'd never heard of named Jabez and the prayer to enlarge my coast and so forth. And I thought, okay, the first one that came in, well, that's kind of neat. And about the third one, I thought, what on earth is this? Okay? But you remember this great best-selling book that came blowing through Christianity, whoa, just blowing through Christianity um, and, and left just as quickly as it, as it came in. And it's just sort of a relic of the uh, early 2000s Christianity. It just blows in, blows out. Okay? This happens all the time. Okay, uh, it, it seems that Christianity has always been, and, and maybe it is now more than ever, very susceptible to fashionable fads in the doctrinal realm. Uh, I, 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 for one, have grown very suspicious of anything new or novel because I just figure if the Holy Spirit hasn't revealed something to the church for the last 1986 years, I get really doubtful that all of a sudden he's going to do it in 2016. Um, doctrinal waves, winds have blown up massive waves that have battered the church since the very beginning. Jesus in Revelation 2 and 3 sternly rebukes those churches who are being steered off course by doctrinal novelties and blasphemous heresies. Uh, The devil, you have to understand, is a master counterfeiter, and he's constantly trying out various doctrines, and he just blows them at the church. And so Paul, less than 40 years after the founding of the church at Pentecost, was wrestling with and fighting against what he says in 1 Timothy 4 is deceitful spirits. And Peter writes in 2 Peter about against destructive heresies. John, in 1 John, warns us to beware the spirit or the wind of Antichrist. It's sad, but it's true that when a doctrinal wind blows through a church, there's, there's going to be a, a fight, to, perhaps to the death, to keep the ship afloat. And, and that's why Paul says children get tossed about by waves. Only a mature man, only a strong church can withstand these sorts of assaults. Only a church rooted in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God will survive the heresy du jour over and over and over again. The second picture of, of a child in danger is a child playing a game of dice. The, the word for trickery or cunning here in verse 14 is the Greek word cubea. Cubea, we get cube, okay? We get dice from, from that. The idea of here is someone who is cheating at a game of dice, 
And, and I think what Paul is saying is children don't know when they're being cheated because they don't even know what to look for. Cheaters don't actually advertise their cheating, okay? When, when wolves come dressed in sheep's clothing, they, don't, they, they, they take the tags off their, <laughs> their costume, okay? Uh, they come in look, looking like sheep. A mature man knows what signs to look for. He knows when something isn't quite right. One of my earliest Halloween memories, um, and by Halloween memories, I didn't get to go trick-or-treating. We would just sit in the house and hope that nobody else came so that whatever, you know, there'd be more candy left over and it wouldn't get given to the other kids. That's, that was Halloween at my house. But what, the, what I remember of that is when the door would ring and there's some monster on the other side of the door, my dad always knew who it was. And I never did. I, I, I thought, how can you figure out that it could be my friend, and I, I just didn't know. But my dad knew, because I don't know how he put all the pieces together. He, he's a man. He probably saw their parents. He saw their shoes. I don't know. But, but this is the difference between a man and a child. A man can put together bits of information and find out who's behind the mask. And, and a mature church survives when someone comes to cheat them at a game of dice. The third picture is very similar, and it's the picture of a child being victimized by con men. And that's in the phrase, craftiness in deceitful scheming. The phrase speaks of a deliberate effort to swindle and rob someone. Children are very naturally trusting, and that's, that's natural, and it's even good, so long as there's a parent around to protect them. But you need to remember something. The serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field, and his servants and his children are crafty buzzards, and they are, they are very ruthless. I don't want you to ever think that Satan is in the business of trying to sneak into your refrigerator and spoil your milk so that your breakfast time goes bad, or he's trying to sneak into your garage and let the air out of your tires, or, or he's crawling into your neighbor's dog and making him do his business on your lawn. That's, that's not what the devil is about. Satan isn't trying to like make your life miserable. He's trying to destroy your soul. And there's no way more effective than to make you think you're holding to the truth, but you're really holding to lies. Think of those who invested hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars with Bernie Madoff, thinking that, thinking that they were making a sound investment when they were really not, thinking they were holding to truth, but were holding to paper that was just lies. There are con men, again, on television who sell miracles in Jesus' name and, and destroy the faith of those who are so desperate. I mean, really, how desperate do you have to be to send money to uh, someone who's got way too much makeup and way too much hair and their teeth are almost miraculously white? I don't, I don't understand what could possess someone to send money to them other than, than a certain level of desperation. The words that come out of these, the mouths of these smiling charlatans will send souls to hell and they will put a church in ruin. If that's true, in verse 13, that the strong church is the greatest representation of Jesus, it's, it's true then that the church is going to be the center of the attacks of, of the enemy. Okay? If, if we as a church look like Jesus, we're going to be the center of the devil's attacks. 
And unfortunately, many churches are like children. They welcome anything and everything and anyone and everyone who has the name of Jesus on their lips, even while they're being cheated and lied to and stolen from and destroyed. Like admiring children, we can just stand back and watch it happen, completely oblivious until it's far too late and we're too weak to stop it. And Jesus is fully aware of the dangers that the church faces. That's why he, through the Spirit, Uh, through the Apostle Paul, calls the church to be mature and strong. That's why he gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers so we'd be equipped to minister each other until we come to the unity of faith to be a mature man, not a child tossed about on the sea of doctrinal turbulence or cheated at dice or swindled by some charlatan masquerading as a man of God. How do we survive storms and cheaters and swindlers? Verse 15, we speak the truth in love. Doctrinal heresy and cheaters and swindlers all have this one thing in common. If they are going to succeed, their victims have to believe their lies. And so we combat these foes by speaking truth to each other, by speaking truth to them. We speak truth to each other so that we know it, so that uh, we know other people know it, and we speak the truth to those who threaten the life of the church because truth will destroy error. Okay, um, I'll try to truncate this last one. The operation of our strength, verse 16. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but it's very rich. Verse 16. Um, what I want you to notice is this. The body is the church. The church is, again, composed of individual members. Paul calls them an individual part or each part. More fully developed in 1 Corinthians 12. Check there when you can. Here's the gist of what Paul is getting at. A collection of people is only an operable body if they all work together. And the things that make them work together are joints and ligaments. Do you see that? This is strange. I've gone through this text, and this week when I was going through it again, I thought, there's joints and ligaments here. I've never seen the joints here, and it's wonderful. So as Ezekiel's in the valley of the dry bones, the bones got to come together before they get up and start walking around. The head bone connected to the neck bone backbone, knee bone, so on and so forth, okay? Because a bucket of bones does no one any good. And, and perhaps that's what Jesus might think the church looks like sometimes, a bucket of bones. All the parts are there. They're just not connected together. They, and because they're not connected together, they can't do anything. You've, you've got this great, big, mighty arm, but there's no shoulder to carry it. So it just sort of lays there and doesn't do anything. You've got big powerful legs but there's no connection at the knee or ankle and so the person can't even stand much less walk or run and and so the language that Paul uses here is that the parts don't work properly if the joints aren't in place and so what is the joint that's that's been the textual question I'm wrestling with all week it could be the joint could be Christ seems grammatically possible it could be the gospel And I think it's actually both of those wrapped up under the language of verse 13, the unity of the faith. There's something that's not only powerful, but it's absolutely essential about the fellowship and and the unity of the church. If there is no unity, there is no interaction between the parts and and no co-laboring together, and then there is no strength. And if there's no strength, there's no growth. The church is at the mercy of the waves. The church does no ministry. And so the The strength of a church is not just the sum of her individual parts. The strength of the church is in 
her joints, if you will, that interaction between believers that makes them capable of doing together things they could never dream of doing on their own. Maybe a church isn't a bucket of bones. Maybe it has built relationships, and I think that's always true to some degree. But I also think it would be fair to say in my own experience and in my life in the church anyway, that sometimes the church is, uh, if you will, quite arthritic. There's connectedness and there's some strength there, but it's hindered by weak and painful joints. Sometimes, and I, I, I say this to myself first of all, uh, I need to have the joints cleaned out and polished up, that, that point of relationship with other people. I can think of people in the church that just irritate me. Uh, they, they drive me nuts. I don't hate them. I'm glad they're a part of the church, and I don't want them to leave, but there's just a general irritation, and, and that leads to a lack of intense unity, and so my co-laboring and partnering together with them is hindered. It's not something I'm proud of. It's something that I have to work at. But one final climax in the text. Paul's going to say it one last time. When all the joints are well-oiled and all the parts are connected together and working together like they're supposed to, this causes, verse 16, the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Isn't it kind of strange? It doesn't strike you as strange. It does me that Paul talks about self-propelled growth here. But that's actually what he says. I think there's growth of maturity, there's growth of strength, and, and even growth of size here. It's, it's, if you will, a wonderfully crafted upward spiral. Jesus gives, the gifts equip, the saints minister, the body is matured and strengthened and perfected in love. The storms come, but they don't overpower us. The ministry goes on, and as the ministry goes on, the souls are saved, and as the souls are saved, they're brought into the church. They're equipped, they minister, they mature, they're tested, they're proven strong, and on and on it goes, and it has for almost two millennia, and doubtless it will until that great day in Ephesians 5 when the Savior takes his bride to his home and the perfection is complete, the unity is absolute, the strength of the church will have been shown, I think, at that day to have been rooted in the power of Christ all along. So, this is where we are going. We are called to walk in strength. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for the Apostle Paul and his words. Thank you for the Lord Jesus who has so faithfully provided the gifts to his church to grow and strengthen the believers to do the work of the ministry. Father, your, your direction and the the strength of the Lord Jesus has not failed your church for nearly two millennia now, and we trust you that it will never fail until the church becomes all that you have called it to be. And so, Father, help us to walk in the strength that you have called us to, using the tools and equipment that you have given us to. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.